Welcome to Functional Design Enclosure. I am Nate Jones. And I'm Christoph Newman. We're here to help you use closure and functional programming to make your everyday life as a developer less frustrating and more fulfilling. We're here to answer your questions about closure and functional programming. Uh, so what's on your mind? Uh, are you feeling stuck? Uh, do you feel like you keep running into some of the same problems over and over? Uh, were you reading about something and you're curious to, to learn some more? Uh, did something come up in your programming that uh, you, you just want to chat about? Here's some more discussion. Uh, let us know. We want to hear from you. Yeah, if you got any, if you answered this any of those questions, or if you have other questions, uh, you can reach out to us. Uh, send us a tweet uh, at Closure Design or an email at feedback at Closure Design Club, uh, or hop into our ever-growing Closure Design Dash podcast channel on the Closure and Slack and ask a question there. Yeah, it's a great place to have some discussion about the episode or to just chat about uh, some of the concepts that came up. Um, and speaking of our Closurians Slack channel, uh, this week we're talking about a question that came in from Tim Hawes in the Slack channel. So he was talking about his experience with his coworkers jumping ship to Kotlin. And it seemed like everybody went on to a closure fad for a while and then just kind of switched over to Kotlin when Kotlin came out. And so he was curious, like, why should you use closure or why use closure over another functional language? <laughs> that, yes, thank you, Tim, for that question. That is, that is an interesting question for sure. I think really this boils down into like two different sub questions. So not trying to dodge, but it's really like why use closure over another purely functional language? And so that would be like Haskell or Erlang mm. or why use closure over a multi-paradigm language that shows up at the table saying, you don't have to choose. You can have OO and functional programming together. So Scala, Python, to some extent, JavaScript, Kotlin, you know, basically it's a language that supports both OO or imperative programming and functional programming, right? So, yeah. and I think the reasons are different for, for both of those. Yeah, it, it's an interesting thing to consider that there's not a third leg to the table. You know, we're not considering closure versus a, a purely object-oriented or, or, you know, an object-oriented first language. You know, we, we've already, it sounds like Tim's team already kind of understands that functional is a, is a, is a compelling uh, paradigm. So the question is, you know, do, do, do which, which, what do you choose from the pantheon of languages, you know? Right. I think, I think if you're going to go down the OO road, that's like a more of a discussion between Go versus Java versus Scala, you know, like yeah. how, how like deep in the OO rabbit hole do you want to go, <laughs> you know? Um, but that's not the question we're answering this week. Oh, no. <laughs> I also I think, thought it was interesting yeah. that he his, his the the coworkers they they like we talked last week or a week before about you know how do you convince your coworkers to to go to closure well somehow they were convinced to go to closure and now they've actually moved from closure to Kotlin like I never thought that closure would be something you move from it's it's too new you know but I, but I guess I guess yeah. there are there are there are, I guess there are also a certain subset of people that will just always jump languages. Like, 
you know, every year they try something new. But, but I think in this case, we're talking more about, you know, why, why would you, why would you remain in closure instead of continuing your, your functional journey? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Tim, whenever you listen to this, hop back into the Slack channel, and I'd be curious what what things took the, your coworkers away off into the land of Kotlin. Uh, what was it that they were excited about? We didn't really get into that much, but that's a different question. Yeah. Okay, so I think for the fear, for the purely functional choice, so that would be Scott, not Scala. That would be Haskell versus Erlang versus Closure. So none of those languages really support OO as a as a thing the language does. Like they all have their ways of interacting with OO type constructs. Mm, yeah, you know, like like. But for example, Haskell and Erlang don't the, like they they each run on their own. Like V, well, platform I has like Erlang has a VM. It's its own runtime. <laughs> Haskell right. compiles to native code, but it's still its own runtime. Whereas Closure got thrust into the interacting with OO thing from the very beginning because it runs on the JVM. So right. interacting with OO code is something Closure does very well, and something that Haskell and Erlang don't necessarily need to deal with so much. But they have their ways of calling like code that was written in something else and compiled for their VM, right? Right. Um, but the biggest difference is like, do you want static typing or dynamic typing? If, you, if you're if you like, I want to be purely functional and I want to have static typing, then then Haskell is your thing. You know, you can use uh, core typed in Clojure. I personally have not ran across a lot of people using core typed. It's uh, really neat. It's a really neat thing. I just haven't seen much use. But um, but that would take you toward Haskell. Yeah, um, if right. if you want a dynamic language, well, then it's like Erlang versus Clojure, right? And I think there you get more into the ecosystem. Do you want to be on the Java ecosystem, or do you want to be on the Erlang ecosystem? Erlang is light, it's fast, it's very portable. Um, it it uh, you you know, it has its features. Uh, whereas the Java, you know, it's very extensive. Highly optimized also, different set of goals. I think there's some other reasons that come to developer experience that maybe we'll circle back on yeah. to talk about the the Erlang developer experience. But but just kind of at the purely functional level, that's sort of the main trade-offs I, I see. But I think the more interesting question really is like the multi-paradigm. Yeah, I think I think um, when you talk about uh, dynamic versus static, like I, I've I've definitely flipped back and forth in my career between static and dynamic uh, typing, you know, Perl and Python on the one side and Go and Java on the other side, and um, I I really think that there's a lot to be said for um, that there 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 are benefits on both sides, um, but uh, yeah, like really being like like so to speak fighting with the type checker is really something that um i i, I have experienced and you know you really gotta be able to uh, it, it, it's it's good for helping you make sure that your program is 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 you know internally consistent with itself but but it really hinders your your exploration um and we we we, yeah, we definitely more into that in a little bit yeah i think the the part of the whole static type checking thing so maybe this actually would be better for its own episode like mm. why why static typing but but w- the issue that comes up with static typing 
is is what I would call like the closed world assumption, right? When you make a change in one part of your code, the type checker is going to look at all the other parts of your code and try to make sure that they all agree. Right. And and code is like as you're you're moving code from point A to point B, you're you're moving the you, like you can't edit in all twelve places at once, right? So <laughs> so static type checking makes you go and and make all of those twelve call sites correct before you can run any of them right it forces you to move your whole program from a consistent place to another consistent place without being able to run it in the middle and and so it's great in the fact that it enforces a a global total consistency right but the downside is running it while it's inconsistent is not a thing that is handled very well. And and that really kind of gets more into a, a more open kind of development that you you get with the closure and the dynamic language experience where we do not have to make all the parts agree to run one of the parts. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and I, I feel like that's kind of what you were alluding to earlier about the developer experience. And I think that the 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 ability to to run just a small part of your code is is a differentiator from between closure and something and, and other languages like you can you can you can always write like toy programs but then you have to write the so to speak the entire closed world in a small version you can't take a part of a big closed world and just run that but in closure you regularly do that in fact that's often that, that's not only allowed it's it's encouraged and celebrated you know like take just this one function and run that one function a bunch of times, um, and it doesn't matter if the, fun- the all the twelve call sites to that function are passing the, r- the wrong number of arguments. Well, they're not running right now, so this this is this is this is the you know this is the the amount of code that I have to r- run to try out my idea. So this is all the code that I need, and, and closure allows you to do that. Yeah, so a great example is we like these pure data models. So we way back at the beginning, we had an episode about tic-tac-toe. And so, yeah, everybody understands how tic-tac-toe the game works, but, but then you have to name the fields, right? And you have to figure out what the flow of information is. And so what's cool is I could be working on like the overall game logic, and then I can come back to how I'm representing the board. And it's like in, in trying to program the overall game logic, let's say I'm finding it cumbersome to figure, like, to work with the board abstraction that I made, and I want to make the board abstraction better. So now in in the REPL, or in my integrated editor, so uh, the fiddle experience that we talk about in our REPL series, mm. um, I, can, I can go op- open up the file that has the code about the board abstraction, and now I can start iterating on that board abstraction, and, and I can find a new abstraction that I like. And and I can keep I can keep running that with with test parts, you know. I, I just right there in the REPL. I can I can change it and then I can have little um example code in my editor that I run over and over as I'm changing the abstraction. So I can iterate very quickly on the abstraction. I can get the board to what the new thing should be and be like, okay, great. Now I'm gonna go back to all those other places and I'm gonna make them agree with what the board is now. But I didn't have to go comment out all the call sites. I didn't have to go somehow make all those other call sites like copacetic so I could iterate on the board. Closure lets me do 
you work within this large open world and just just hang out in in one part of it and iterate quickly on it yeah absolutely it's it's the it's like you were saying before the closed world versus open world you know it's like you don't have to compile your entire closure application in order to run a sub, a subset of it like you you obviously at some point in time you will compile the entire one and run the entire program but you're not forced to do that as a consequence of the the compilation strategy chosen or because you the type checker has to use, be used everywhere i mean like it's 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 divisible you can you can take small chunks of it and use them on their own and i think that's yeah. a really compelling use case it's a, a really uh, accelerating use case or uh, property that makes the developer experience so much better than other languages. Right. It feels like you're you're programming very rapidly. Mm-hmm. So Stu Holloway likes to call this programming with scissors because it's like you're cutting out just the part of the code you want to work with right now. <laughs> I, I like to call it like open world development because you're you're you yeah. you don't have to make the whole world agree. You know, you get to work on just a little part of it and then you can bring it back into the rest of the world when you want it to agree. But that idea. So really, that's that's kind of like closure gives you that great combination of being dynamic, which enables that open world development and then and being rebel oriented. So you can inject new things into the running process freely. Right. So that's really how it's going to differentiate between Erlang and Haskell. Um so then to come back to the other question, the, really the other side of it is is the multi-paradigm side. Right? Uh, like, like the why, cake and eat it too languages. Yes. Like why should you have to choose? You know, you should you should be able to inline assembly, inline C, right? Uh, make classes, make delegates, make interfaces, right? Have not just single inheritance, but multi-inheritance. And you should be able to use functional, uh, pass functions around as first class. And operator overloading. I don't know what else, what else would you like in your cake. How about some XML? I always like XML in my cake. Oh yeah, Tasty inline cake. XML. Yeah, yeah. So all those things Scala can do. <laughs> well, maybe not the inline assembly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Scala could inline XML though. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> uh, that. That is both incredibly amazing and terrifying at the same time. It's an amazing feeling that I'm feeling right now. Right, right. So, yes, obviously. So the obvious, the point we're trying to make without saying it is there is a certain complexity that comes with having uh, 15 different ways you can bake the cake, right? Right. And I, and I think that's one of the things because I, I have done some some Scala in the past. Um, and and I remember as I was using it, like I, because I, I think you were using it at the same time. I was kind of learning from some of your code, and I, I would be working along, and I'd, I'd run into a kind of a corner, and I'd be like, "Oh, how, how do I, how would I do this?" And you'd be like, "Oh, well, there's this other language feature that you could use." And it, so it'd be like, "Oh, now I need now now my 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 cognitive load is higher because now there's more language features that I need to understand in order to be able to fully express my programs." And so I had I kept expanding, right. and then and then I expanded to things like implicits, which which expanded my mind but then i realized i didn't really want to use them because it was too magic like right like the cognitive load is real you're reading source code and and you're like oh well that's inheritance oh well that is interfaces exactly oh well that's that's like uh higher order functional programming oh that's implicit Uh, oh so 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 one source file might have all these wildly different ideas in it and and so now like there's a cognitive 
yeah, maintaining all that. I like how you put it, cognitive load. But but the other side of that same coin is really like those are different ways of abstracting. Like they're fundamentally different approaches to abstracting. Yeah, totally. And so like OO and inheritance versus like enclosure, you know, for first class functions, functional programming, and then maybe protocols when you need to interact or multi-methods, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. Like multi-methods and protocols give you the same expressive possibility as classes do, but they do so in a way that is in kind of in line with the primary abstraction tool enclosure, which is would be functions and higher order programming. But but so so but uh, these multi-paradigm languages, like there's this tension, right? There's this tension between oh, how should I abstract it? And that's that's really why I stopped. I use Scala quite heavily for I don't know six years. Actually, maybe closer to 10. I don't know. It was was quite a while. I started using Scala six months or so before it hit the public, like when it hit the public. Oh, you were a hipster Scala user. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And and I stopped using it because I would would go and, you know, include some library off GitHub and it would be all about the OO like way of solving the problem. And then I'd include some other library. It'd be all about the functional way. And, And it just got very difficult to be like constantly switching between these really different ways of of abstracting. Right, because in your f- program, you probably only chose one. You probably, I'm guessing, only chose the functional way of, of abstracting. And yeah, so, mainly. So when people bring in, when you bring in an object-oriented, you know, mutable state kind of abstraction for, for, for managing, you know, some, some sub-process, then you have to make like a an interface to that, like some bastion or, or or wall inside of your program that protects the rest of your pure program from that that mutable side effecty you know library. Just just to accomplish the thing, right? And yeah, and so then I had I, I was pulling in libraries. I, I wasn't even thinking about the mutable versus immutable because Scala lets you sort of have have it both ways that way too. Um, <laughs> really? And yeah, yeah, and so, kind of like Kotlin also. So you're you, it, it's like immutability is encouraged but not like demanded. And so you would you'd pull in some API where mutability was like core to how it worked. And so now, now all of a sudden you have references with things that can be changed out from under you. So I just found myself right. doing like defensive wrappers that were like immutable wrappers over the around the mutable thing. You know, and with Clojure, I know that when I pull a library in out of uh, Clojars, that it, it's not going to, like, rest on mutability for getting work done. I know it's not going to rest on inherent. Like, it's going gonna, it's gonna to abstract things in sort of the Clojure way, because there is a Clojure way. It's, it's not trying to go in five different directions of abstraction at once. Yeah. No, it's, it's definitely having a... I wouldn't call it a single paradigm or uniparadigm. <laughs> What's the opposite of multi-paradigm? I don't know. Well, uh, it's coher- having- coherent. Yeah, I think I think really the the real question is 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 there an abstraction you can't make enclosure, right? Because if you can if you can abstract things with a a simpler set of semantics, if you can still make all the same abstractions with a simpler set of semantics. Like, wouldn't that be better than than having a much much broader set? Because now, 
now a developer has to know all the different ways, right? They now have to know a bigger set. Yeah, getting back to that cognitive load uh, question is that when I when I when I read closure, like when I read bad closure, as in you know the closure I wrote two years ago or five years ago, you know when I was just starting out. Um, (laughs) I still, there isn't anything about that code. Like I remember when I first got into Ruby, um, and there was the whole thing, idea of metaprogramming and how you can, everything can be changed on the fly. And I thought that's a really cool idea. But then I realized over time that I couldn't trust anything. Nothing was as it, as it seems. And so, but I know in closure, when I, when I see the map function or when I see, you know, some data come out of, out of a function that, 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 you know, that someone wrote, I know that. I know, I know its properties. I can trust it, you know. I think that's a big... Yeah. Yeah, so, so just to kind of come back and summarize a little bit, like the, the open world development, right? So that dynamic experience at the REPL, right? The, the being able to program with scissors. Like that's a big deal. And I think that's what really differentiates it between the other purely functional languages. And then the multi-paradigm languages are just inherently more complex, and then they don't give you uh, a consistent set of guarantees. So, so you really end up in uh, the good parts kind of problem. You know, <laughs> JavaScript, the good parts, right? Yeah. Uh, Scala, the good parts. Python, the good. You, you end up really as a team, you end up with all these conventions that you as a team, like everybody needs to get in line and follow these. Because if people start deviating way out into the edges of the language... Then, then it's like, oh no, it's really hard to read other people's code. You know, it's why it's like why Go is so easy to read for Go programmers because right. Go just said nope, nope, nope to a lot of things, um, and so that feels very limiting. But but then the the beauty of it is like you can just pick up Go code and make sense of it pretty easily. Whereas that was not my my experience in Scala having used it extensively or, or Perl. Perl's another good one, you know, <laughs> yeah. a write only language. <laughs> oh, I, well, it reminds me of the quote, you know, you know, there's always two programmers on every project, you and you six months from now. Um, and so oh, yeah. I think, I think code is a, is, is, is about communicating with two things. One, it's about communicating with the computer, but it's also about communicating to the other developer or developers. And so it's, it's the, the computer can handle you using the esoteric versions of the language. Like, it doesn't care. The compiler designer handled that. But you don't want to impact your fellow coworkers with with the extra load, the extra complexity, um, the inability to, 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 to change things in a reasonable manner. Um, and if, if those are things that are important to you, then I think Clojure is a good, a good tool to use. Yeah, definitely. So, so... In, in this discussion, we brought up a lot of ideas. We brought up this open world development. We brought up immutability. We brought up type systems. We brought up iterating, you know, rapidly with a rebel or connected editor, all this. So if you would like, you, dear listener, would like to hear more about these things, then we would love to hear from you. Like, what do you want to hear more of? What, what would you like? Or does all that stuff, it just sounds like totally clear and given and move on to another topic, please. <laughs> Either way, we'd love to hear from you. It seems like the closure in Slack is a great way to get, have a nice conversation about this. So, uh, so you can hop on over. 
into the Clojurian Slack and join the Closure Design Dash podcast channel. But we uh, also participate with Twitter. So reach us at Closure Design. And we have been known to read and answer email. As, as archaic as that is, it's still Rumor. very useful. F- yes. Feedback Mythology. at design.club. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yes. Uh, speaking of other arcane and old school ways of communicating, uh, we have a website. <laughs> you can find our the show web. notes. web. <laughs> you that? can reach it over the tubes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, and on that website, there are uh, past episodes and show notes. And there's also uh, uh, biographies of us if you want to learn more about our backgrounds. Yes, yes, we would uh, love to have you go check that stuff out there. (laughs) And so send us your questions. We'll keep the discussion going. And we will be back next week to talk about more closure-y things. But that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. 